Once again, welcome to Harvest. We're really glad you're here. And if you're a guest with us today, we're especially glad you're here. And if we can help you or serve you in any way, please let us know. We would really love to do that today. Uh, so I'm kind of excited today. We're starting into a brand new series. Uh, but before I do that, I want to do kind of a, little, a, like a pre-sermon sermon. Can I do that? Just like real quick, can you just indulge me for a moment here? Um, there's a couple things. Anytime you jump into a new series, I kind of feel like there needs to be a little bit of a groundwork. There needs to kind of be some things said. Uh, and this one maybe even more so for a couple reasons. So let me kind of just explain a couple things this morning. Although um, not the norm for us here at Harvest, this series is going to be what I would call a truly topical series. Okay, that's not kind of the normal thing we do here. We normally do expository preaching. And if you don't know what that means, it's just a fancy word that means we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, through chapters of the Bible, um, and things like that. And that's what I prefer. That's what we prefer as a church for sure. Um, However, there are times where when we want to learn on certain ideas or issues or topics, that information isn't all in the same place in the Bible. And so sometimes we kind of have to pull some things together. We're going to kind of do that in this series. Um, and so um, so just uh, uh, one thing I'm thankful for is that although we do prefer expository preaching here at Harvest, uh, we're also not legalistic about methods here. Uh, the Bible never changes. The message never changes. Sometimes the methods need to uh, in order to be more effective for the Lord. And so we're going to do that in this series. So a couple things to help you with that since it's kind of outside of what our normal thing is. Uh, one thing I'm going to do is you're going to see a lot more scripture up on the screen, okay, uh, for two reasons. One, so you can see that we are still teaching the Bible, okay? These aren't just things that Micah's coming up with. And number two, so you can kind of keep up, you're not having to flip all the time in the Bible, trying to find all these different passages and kind of get lost in the middle of the sermon. So you'll see a little bit more scripture on the screen than usual, although I'd still prefer that you have your Bible open and try to follow along as you can. Um, and secondly, if, you like, if you're like just like the hardcore, like expository guy or woman, you're like, that's what I like, that's what I want, Good news is um, it's only six weeks, okay? So just, just kind of grin and bear it with me for six weeks, and I think if you really kind of just press into this that you will uh, be thankful that you did and that you will really be, uh, get something out of it as the Lord speaks to us through this series. So second thing is um, the inspiration for this series is actually a book uh, called When Sinners Say I Do. Um, I have used this book uh, for years in premarital counseling and marriage counseling and have just always seen super great results with it, positive impact. It always has a, a great um, return. And so I was just thinking, you know, instead of just using this now and then uh, for counseling, why don't I just take the principles out of this book and just teach them to our whole church? Uh, and I think it's going to be really helpful for us as we walk through this together. And so um, uh, pretty much anything I say that's going to be really good or helpful or insightful over the next couple of weeks uh, probably is not original with me. Okay, so let's just go ahead and put that on the table uh, so everybody knows that this is, uh, we're getting a lot of stuff from here and from other sources. And so I would encourage you to, if, if this is, you find this really helpful to, to get the book and read it. Like I said, it's When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey. You can get it on Amazon for like 10 or 12 bucks. It's really, really good. So that's that. And then um, Klein, just the last thing I want to kind of preface here is um, I've kind of set this up uh, as a relationship series. And I think there's kind of this lingering question on why, why would you do a relationship series? Why would you do a series on relationships? Uh, historically in churches, sometimes series like this can kind of be awkward and uh, a little uncomfortable at times because, um, you know, we're kind of all in different stages of life. We're in different seasons. We're in different situations, different circumstances. Um, and I'm very aware of that for our church, that we have a, a large portion of our church that are married or have families or kids. We have a large portion of our church that are single and are not in that. Um, we have some that are, um, you know, their spouses are Christians and are with them and some that are not. And like, so there's all kinds of just kind of different situations and issues that we're going to be working through here uh, in this series together. And so, so why do this series? Well, I'm going to give you three reasons, kind of the foundation for why we're doing this. Hopefully this will kind of help you understand and get even more out of it. Um, the first thing I think is this, that, that relationships matter. Right? Um, God designed us, he created us uh, for relationships. Not maybe always marriage relationships, but some type of relationships. He wants us to do life with other people. And uh, he cares about how that looks and how that works. And so if we're going to do uh, relationships well, we need to do them the way God tells us to do them. And so we need help from his word navigating how to do relationships in a godly and helpful way. And so although in this series, 
marriage is going to be kind of our prototype relationship that we're using to walk through some of these issues and skills and ideas, um, I think most of what we're going to be talking about is actually going to be something you can apply to multiple relationships in your life, not just a spousal relationship. And so I think you can use it that way, and it'll be applicable to everyone. Um, the second thing I would say is that, um, the second reason is this, as a family, and I'm not talking about family, I'm talking about our church family, as the family of God, um, we need to seek to know one another, to understand one another, to support one another. And part of doing that is learning things from the Lord, from his word, that maybe don't always directly even apply to us in the moment, but they apply to the person sitting next to us or the person in our small group or the person in our prayer group. And we need to know that so we can minister to them, so that we can support them, so that we can love them well. And uh, so some of what you're going to be learning over the next couple weeks may not be something that's just for you. Maybe it's for someone that you're in relationship with, um, that you can be encouraging them in that. And that's going to go both ways. And so I'm calling this relationship series because we are going to be doing some stuff on marriage and some, some skills and that, but we're also going to have a, a message in the series on singleness and God's view of singleness and God's purpose for singleness and why he loves it and how he uses it. And so we're going to be learning so that we can all kind of press into this for one another and learn to help and serve one another in this as well. And the third reason that we're doing this series uh, and this is probably the most foundational one, to be honest, is um, that marriages are struggling today. Um, marriages are struggling, I think, for a, for a lot of reasons. Um, one, I think it's under attack um, from Satan and from even our society at times. Um, I think it's struggling oftentimes because there's sin in the marriage that one or both spouses is, are contributing. Well, I'll even say it that way that both spouses are contributing uh, to the marriage and that our sins hurt one another and um, it, it has an effect in that way. And uh, even many Christian marriages, I believe, are suffering and struggling today because a lot of them are, a lot of people, Christians, are just ignorant as to what God's word says about what a healthy marriage is. Um, they just don't know. They just haven't been taught. No one's ever talked taught them from God's word, this is what a healthy, God-honoring, God-glorifying marriage looks like or relationship looks like. And so we need to know that. We need to learn that. And so as your pastor, um, I feel like it's my duty to help and to help us all get a better understanding and a better uh, grasp on what that looks like. And so that's why we're kind of pressing in to this series. So I say all of that to say that I urge you not to miss out on this. Don't miss out on this series. I know that that you might be a little fearful, that it might be uncomfortable or awkward, or you think it doesn't apply to you, or you might be afraid of how it might make you feel. And, and I'm, just gonna, I'm just gonna say, don't, don't miss the blessing that God has for you in this series. Don't let Satan steal away from you what God wants to teach you and how he wants to grow you in this series. He would love nothing more than to do that, okay? Uh, but I really think that it's something that we can all learn from and the Lord's gonna help us in. Amen? Are we good? All right, now for the sermon. Okay, so this morning, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Open up to Jeremiah chapter 9. That's where we're going to be starting at. If you need a Bible, there's a hardback black one somewhere there on the floor around you. You can grab that um, and go to Jeremiah chapter 9. And so the, the entry-level uh, message today for the uh, new series is the shocking truth about marriage. And I think we're going to need to learn some things or maybe relearn some things about marriage from what we previously thought or have been taught or know. Before I do that, I want to say this, ask a question, and just ponder this for a second here. What makes a marriage successful? Or I could rephrase it. What makes a marriage last? <laughs> Sometimes that's, that's the marker, it seems like, anymore. Does it last, even? Um, what, what, is it, what, what do you have to have to make it in marriage? What are some thoughts? Let's just get a little interaction this morning. Like, call out some things. What, do, what are some things that you think makes marriage successful? Give me some ideas. Lord, grace, honesty, communication, respect, commitment, forgiveness, love. There's a good one. You know, marriage, love, you know, just throw that one in there on the end there. Um, sense of humor, okay. Um, all of that is true. I think all of that, we've been married for 15 years. I think all of that's true. I think all of that has a place. Um, and making marriage work. But here I think is the real secret that a lot of people have not gotten yet as to why marriage works. The most important thing in making marriage work 
is your view of God. It's what you think about, it's how you see, it's how you relate to God. It's what has the biggest impact on your marriage. I'll phrase it like this. What I believe about God determines the quality of my marriage. What I believe about God determines the quality of my marriage. And we can apply that again to any relationship. That's what determines the quality of the relationships in my life. What I believe about God undergirds all of that. So let me see if I can show you that from Jeremiah chapter 9 this morning. Verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What the prophet is saying here to us is that the most important thing in life, the thing that that most impacts us, the thing that has the biggest uh, effect on who we are and how we relate to others and what we do, he says, first of all, it's not wisdom. He says, don't, don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom. It's not about wisdom. That's not the most important thing, right? It's not reading all the right books. It's not knowing all the right answers. It's not being an expert on whatever it is. He says, it's not the wisdom thing. That's not the most important. He also says, it's not strength. He says, don't let the strong man boast in his strength. It's not about your strength. It's not about your ability, right? It's not about the strength of your love or the strength of your commitment or the strength of your abilities or your communication skills. It's, it's not about that. That's not the most important thing. He says it's not in your money. Nobody said that one earlier, by the way, when we were talking about what makes money, marriage work. Um, I don't know how y'all marriages work, but our marriage needs money, okay? So um, that's, that's like one of the leading causes of divorce, right, is, is over finances. Money makes a difference in marriage. But he says right here, it's not the most important thing. It's not about money. It's not about your salary, your investment portfolio, or your standard of living. He says the most important thing, what's most important, he says, is understanding and knowing God. That that is primary. In fact, I would challenge that that is the pursuit of the Christian life. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, this is the number one thing that we're running after is knowing and understanding God. Not being a good person, not serving the church, not giving money, not evangelizing the lost, all that's good stuff, but that's not the most important stuff. The most important thing in our life of following Christ is am I pursuing him? Am I knowing him? Am I drawing closer to the God of the universe? Because who God is undergirds and impacts everything in my life. That personal relationship that I have with him is what makes everything the way it is. My identity, my purpose, my eternity, it all flows from who is he and how am I related to him. A pastor of uh, days past, A.W. Tozer, says it like this. What comes in our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And this understanding of God, who he is and how we relate to him, it comes through how he reveals himself to us. And so I'm just gonna give you real quick three ways here that God reveals himself to us that gives us an understanding of who he is that thereby impacts our marriages and our relationships. Number one, The Bible is the foundation for a thriving marriage. The Bible is the first and kind of primary way that God reveals who he is. In in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says this, Then the Lord said, God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make make him a helper fit for him. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God's word tells us here that in the beginning, God created marriage. Like it was his idea. Do you understand that? Like the state didn't come up with it. Some, some you know, other person didn't come up with it. Like God is the one who came up with the idea of marriage. He created it. It's from him. It's his design. And so 
Therefore, if anybody knows how it works best, it's going to be him. And he has a plan for what that looks like. And he lays it out as he reveals himself in his word. The Bible is God's book that teaches us how life works best, and therefore how marriage works best. It reveals to us who he is and what his plan is. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God. It's all from him. He wrote it. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then catch this, that every man of God, I'm sorry, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Certainly one of those good works that the Bible equips us for is marriage. Because it's from the Lord. So God's word is the first thing. The Bible is the foundation for the thriving marriage. The second thing is the gospel. God reveals himself to us through his gospel. The gospel is the fountain of a thriving marriage. It's what, it's what fills us. It's the source. It's 1 Timothy again, verse, chapter 1, verse 12 says this. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. That's all of us, by the way. All of us at one point were opponents of God. But, he says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is us. This is every follower of Jesus Christ. At one point, we were sinners. We were opponents of God, and only by his mercy, only by his grace that overflowed into our lives are we saved and redeemed and changed and brought closer to him. And the same is true for your spouse. So when I start to understand that God's grace is the only reason I'm here, God's grace is the only reason that I am anything available to me or to my spouse or to my kids and my spouse the same way, then God's grace becomes the fountain that fills my marriage, that is the source behind my relationship that brings grace in. Because we're both just broken sinners that have been overflowed with the grace of God. That's the gospel. And then the third way that he reveals himself is the glory of God. The glory of God is the focus of a, of a thriving marriage. This is the focus. Every single one of us was created for the glory of God. That's our purpose. Isaiah 43 says it like this, verse 6. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We were made, we were created for the glory of God. That's our purpose. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says it similarly. He says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So everything we do should be to glorify him, including the way that we do marriage. The purpose of my marriage is to bring more glory, more praise, more um, respect and, and honor and worship to God. So to summarize, here's the way I would say that. When I believe that God's word is authoritative, that God's grace is sufficient, and that God's glory is preeminent, then my marriage will be all that he designed it to be. When I come back to those three things, God's word, God's grace or gospel, and God's glory, then my marriage will be centered and founded where it needs to be. What I believe about God determines the quality of my marriage. It has to start there. And because what I believe about God also impacts what I believe about myself, here's the next hard truth that we have to come to grips with. Number two, I am the worst sinner in my marriage. I'm the worst sinner in my marriage. 1 Timothy 1. Go ahead and flip over there if you're not there yet. I want you to see this for yourself. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. 
Paul here is writing to Timothy, and he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That is a shocking statement, right? This is the Apostle Paul writing here. Like, perhaps next to Jesus Christ, perhaps the, the man who most influenced the church, who has written the majority of the New Testament, who has planted more churches and spread the gospel more places, like, this is the guy. And he's writing this at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry. This is one of the last letters he wrote. He wrote it to Timothy. He's been walking with Jesus for a long time now, and he calls himself the worst, the, the foremost sinner. <laughs> How could Paul possibly say that? Is some, some have uh, theorized that he's actually talking in the past tense. Like he's talking about, like, I used to be the worst sinner, and then Jesus saved me. But the problem is, he's not using past tense here, he's using present tense, and Paul was a smart enough guy that he knew the difference. Okay? Other people have said, well, you know, maybe, you know, as time went on and he walked more Jesus, he got more and more, he experienced more and more of God's grace, and so he just kept sinning, and so he knew God's grace would cover it. And, but the problem with that is, there's another place in one of his other letters where he says, don't do that. All right, we don't sin more so that grace may abound more, he says. Here is what's going on with Paul. The more Paul walked with Jesus and grew closer to the perfect light of the Spirit, the more he became aware of the depth and the breadth of his own sin. See, that's the way it works. The closer we get to Jesus and his perfection and his holiness, the more we see him clearly, the more we realize, man, I got some problems. Right? Like, I got some stuff. And it reveals more and more of the sin in my own heart the closer I get to Christ. I've noticed in my years in Christianity that sometimes people, as they go more and more years into being a Christian, the more and more they're, the longer they're a Christian, they start to focus more and more on other people's sin. Right? They start pointing out other people's sin more and more because they feel like they're arriving. And that's bad, guys. That's, that's just reeking of self-righteousness. If we're truly growing in Christ, if we're truly coming closer to Jesus, we should not be becoming more self-righteous. We should be becoming more humble in the presence of a perfect, holy God and saying, I am undone with the, the breadth and the depth of the sin in my own heart. And that applies to our marriages as well. Dave Harvey, the author of the book I mentioned earlier, wrote this. He said, once I know, once I know that I am indeed the worst of sinners, then my spouse is no longer my biggest problem. I am. That feels different, doesn't it? <laughs> A lot of times when we're, when we're in the fight, when we're in the conflict, when, the, when there's all the stuff going on, all we want to do is blame them and point to them, and you did this and you did that, and we feel like they're the one causing all of it. But reality is, if I'm in front of Jesus, my heart is not clean. And I got stuff on my side that I need to own and I need to deal with, and I need to deal with my stuff before I start trying to deal with my spouse's stuff. And so part of this, if I see myself as the foremost sinner, part of clearly seeing my sin is also seeing who it's against. Check out this verse, Psalm 51.4, David's writing, and he says, Against you, Lord, is who he's talking to. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, David here, he's using hyperbole, right? Like he, does, he knows that his sin wasn't just against God. It was against other people too. But he's, he's using this kind of exaggeration to say, listen, my sin is not first against me. My sin is not first against another person. My sin is first and foremost against a holy, perfect God. I think oftentimes in relationships, family, friends, marriage, whatever it might be, 
it seems like, to me at least, that most of the time it's easiest for us to sin against the people that we say we love the most. Has anybody else noticed that? Like, I, I, like you're usually on better behavior, you know, at work with the boss than you are at home with the spouse <laughs> or with the brother or the sister or whatever. Like, it's just, it seems like we are, it's easier for us to sin and hurt the ones that we actually love and care for the most because like, oh, well, they love us and we got a good relationship and it's covered by love and it's just a small sin. It's just small sins. It's not, they're not a big deal. But see, there are no small sins because every sin is first and foremost against a holy, perfect God and so therefore, every sin is equally grievous against him. I cannot simply dismiss my small sins, quote-unquote small sins, against my spouse as no big deal. Because they're also against a holy God. See, sometimes we measure sin wrongly. I've, I've said this before, but this is usually how I phrase it. The greatness of the sin is not measured based on the nature of the sin, but rather on the greatness of the one sinned against. This is so key to understanding, truly understanding sin and repentance. Because our world does not see it this way. Our, our legal system does not see it this way. Our, like, we do not get this concept because we're not, oftentimes not measuring against a standard of perfection like God is. But the greatness of the sin is not measured based on the nature of the sin. It's measured based on the greatness of the one sinned against. So by point of illustration, let me see if I can do this here. I've used this one before. Let's pretend that tonight you're going to go home after service here. You're going to go home tonight. And you're going to regress back to your, you know, like eighth grade self. Okay? Some of you, that's scarier than others. Um, but we're going to go back to, to your eighth grade self. And uh, you're going to, to, to decide you're going to mess with your friend tonight, you're going to make a little prank phone call, okay? So you're going to call your friend up and say, I'm, I'm you know, you use the, you know, like your, your scariest, you know, thriller voice, and you're like, I'm coming over to your house tonight, I'm, I'm coming in, I'm going to get you, and blah, 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 blah. And what's going to happen? Like, what's the consequence of that? Might be mad at you, maybe lose a friend, not much, right? Like, not that big of a deal. And then let's say you hang up the phone, you pick it up again, and you make the exact same phone call to the President of the United States. I'm coming to your house tonight. I'm going to break in. I'm going to get you. Different consequences, right? Like all of a sudden, black guy, like guys show up to your house in like black suits and sunglasses and handguns, and like it's going to go bad for you, right? Exact same action. You did the exact same thing. Different consequences. Not because the action was different, because the one you did it against was different. It's not the greatness of the sin, it's the greatness of the one sinned against. And because all sins are against a perfect and holy God, all sins are equally sinful and wicked and separate us from him. There is no such thing as a small sin against my spouse, my family, my friends, or anyone else. So if all of this is true, if, if seeing clearly who God is shows me that I'm the worst sinner and that there are none of my sins that are okay or excusable, then what is the answer to that? The Bible only gives one answer to deal with sin problems, and that is repentance. And repentance is not the same thing as confession. These are two words that are related and connected but oftentimes are used synonymous, synonymously when they are not that. So let's just do a real quick highlight here on the difference between confession and repentance because this is so key to understanding what it means to really come to the Lord in repentance. So confession, let's start there. Confession is simply an admission of guilt. Confession is simply saying, yes, I did it. Yes, I know that that was wrong. Okay? Usually confession comes when I'm sorry that I got caught. That's usually what confession is, right? Like, something came out, I got caught, yeah, sorry, I did it, I confess. Right? Uh, it's usually based on shame or guilt. And sometimes I confess simply to relieve my own conscience, 
right? Like, I'm just tired of carrying around the burden of what I did. And so if I say it out loud, then it kind of gets this weight off my shoulders and makes me feel better, even though it might hurt someone else in the process. That's confession. Repentance is a whole other thing. It's a whole step further than confession. Repentance is not just an admission of guilt, but a turning away from the sin. Saying, yes, I did it, and I'm not going to do it again. I'm turning away from sin, and I'm turning towards Jesus. I'm, I'm running to his grace and his forgiveness, and I'm letting his spirit come and change me and put that sin in my past. Repentance is not just sorry I got caught, but sorry that I sinned in the first place. That's a big difference. I don't know if you ever dealt with that with kids or a friend or somebody, and they apologize, but you can tell they're really just apologizing because they're sorry they got caught. That's a different apology than, I'm really sorry I did that to you, right? You know what I'm talking about? This type of repentance comes from godly sorrow, godly grief. When I see my sin the way that God sees it, and I'm truly sorry that I did it in the first place. And repentance is also a response of genuine conviction from the Holy Spirit. Not just getting my conscience clean, not just getting the guilt or the shame off my shoulders, but I really feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my heart that, man, I don't want to do that again. That grieves the Lord. And that's the last thing I want. The answer to our sin is not simply confession. Confession is an okay place to start, but that's not enough. We have to get to repentance. And repentance oftentimes has to happen at two levels. As we just said, all sin is against a holy God, and so therefore repentance first has to happen with him. I have to repent to the Lord. And then oftentimes I need to go repent to someone else as well, whoever it was I sinned against. Spouse, kids, friend, family, whatever it is. I am the worst sinner in my marriage. And I require a life of repentance. That should be the life of every Christian. An ongoing life of repentance. Just day in and day out. And I need that in my marriage. Instead of pointing fingers at them, instead of blaming them, instead of always thinking that they're the problem, I need to realize that I have a sinful heart and I need repentance and I need to get my stuff right with the Lord. So my view of God is what lays the foundation for my marriage. My view of God shows me that I am indeed the worst of sinners. And the third thing is God, my view of God shows me that sin makes marriage war. Makes marriage war. Let me share this story with you here. July 21st, 1861. The first major battle of the Civil War started before dawn. The war, roar of artillery seemed to awaken everyone in Virginia as the Union and the Confederate armies clashed among the farms by a stream called Bull Run. But a strange thing happened as the battle intensified. Hundreds of Washingtonians, senators and representatives, government workers and their families all dressed in leisure apparel and carrying picnic baskets raced to the hill near Manassas to watch the battle unfold. Armed with opera glasses to survey the fighting, they chatted amiably as men were slaughtered on the fields below. One northern sympathizer commented, that is splendid, oh my, that is first rate. I guess we will be in Richmond by this time tomorrow. Spirits were high, toasts were raised, all in all they thought it was a superb way to spend a summer afternoon. Suddenly, a rebel counterattack led by a strong char charging cavalry swept over the Union flank, putting the army to flight. Even to the untrained eyes, the Im implications were obvious. The serene picnic ground was about to become a battle zone. Mass confusion erupted as spectators fled just moments before the Confederate wave washed over the hill. The entertainment was over. The battle was upon them. The picnickers discovered something about war that day. 
you can't be close to it and safe from it at the same time. Only the naive think that they can stand on the sidelines of warfare and merely be entertained. When war enters the scene, everything it touches becomes a battlefield. That's the nature of sin. Sin is war. It creates war that threatens our lives, our hearts, our marriages, our relationships, all of it. And so three ways that sin makes war in our lives and our marriages that we need to be aware of so that we can handle it correctly. Number one, sin makes war with God. Romans 8, 7 through 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All right? So because of my sin, because of my sinful heart, uh, it makes me hostile to God. It makes me not want to submit to God's law. And I cannot please God when I'm operating in my flesh, when I'm operating in sin. Because sin makes war with God. It puts us at odds with him. Also, sin makes war with others. We see this all throughout the scriptures. You can go back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve, right? Like they eat the fruit and then God comes and he's like, what's going on? And what do they do? They start blaming each other, right? Like, no, it was him. No, it was him. Like, it makes war with other people. They're, they're first two sons. One of them ends up killing the other over sin. Right? We can go all through the Bible. You have Achan, where he steals the stuff at Jericho right? and, and gets found out. And not only he dies, but his entire family is killed. You have King David, the man after God's own heart, the top king of Israel, whose sin not only led to adultery, but also led to murder. Our sin doesn't just affect us, doesn't just affect God, it makes war on others, including our spouse, including our friends and our family and our relationships. But also sin makes war with myself. I think this one is the most telling. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And who's ever felt that inside, right? That you have these kind of two forces inside of you that are fighting it out and battling. You have your flesh, your sinful side that wants to do all this stuff, and you have the Spirit of God living inside you because you're saved, and you have these two, two, two forces that are just fighting against one another. My dad used to describe it as two dogs, right? Have, everyone has two dogs inside of us that are fighting it out, and the one that's going to win is the one that you feed the most. It's the one that I'm pouring into. It's the one that I'm giving my time and attention to. Am I, am I well, giving my time to God's word and to the spirit and to prayer and to following after Christ? Or am I giving my time to all these other things in the world that are feeding my flesh? It makes me do what I don't want to do. And that is marriage. Two people fighting against the flesh, trying not to shoot each other with friendly fire in the fog of the war of sin. That I'm fighting against this war of sin in my heart and in my life, trying not to shoot my spouse in the meantime. And both sides are battling with this. Again, a, a quote from Harvey, said, he says this. He says, the sides in this war, I think this is so good. The sides in this war are not male versus female, husband versus wife, or controller versus enabler. It's a clash of desires, desires of the flesh against desires of the spirit. The real war in your marriage is not with your spouse. It's in your heart. Your spouse is not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And he is trying to do everything he can to ruin your heart and to ruin your relationship with the sinful desires. Conflict, strife, bitterness, it all comes from the same place. This battle of the flesh versus the spirit inside each one of us. That's where we must fight. You want to fight? Good. Fight that. Don't fight each other. 
Sin makes marriage war. Not with my spouse, but with my flesh. Sin makes marriage war. Not with my spouse, not with that friend or family member or other coworker. It's not with them. It's with you. It's inside of you. We need to be ma- making war on our flesh through the power of the Spirit. So, my picture of God is what undergirds and determines the quality of my marriage. It shows me that I am the foremost sinner. It shows me that I need to make war on my sin. And then lastly, number four, it shows me that marriage is not about me. Marriage is not about me. Ephesians chapter five, turn there. Ephesians five. I want everybody to see this again. This, what we're about to see here in the Bible, this is the opposite of the world's view of marriage, okay? If every indication of our society's view of marriage is that marriage is to make me happier, right? That's the reason we go and find somebody. That's the reason we get married because we want to be happy. We want somebody to complete us, to fulfill us, to, you know, as one movie said, to, to, to make us whole. Like, that's what we're looking for. And if, and if the marriage isn't leading to happily ever after, then it's not worth it. And so we just bail on it and we get out. Because everything about it says that marriage is about me, my life, my happiness. What can this do to fulfill me? The world gets marriage wrong because the world gets love wrong. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 1. Some of you are already down at verse 22, weren't you? We're not going there. Start in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Love is action, not just emotion. Love, biblically speaking, love is action, not just emotion. He says here, walk in love. You see the action to that? Walk in love. He describes describes Christ as the one who loved us and gave himself for us as a sacrifice. That's an action. That Christ came and he did something. He gave his life on the cross. He walked in our place. He took our sin as an action to show us love. So many times we get into this mindset that love is all about emotion and feeling. And there is emotion to it. Please don't get me wrong. There's definitely emotion involved in love, and there should be. But it's not the most important thing. It's not just about feeling in love. It's not just about, that's why people talk about falling in love or falling out of love. Like like it's something that comes and goes with the wind. It doesn't. Because it's not primarily just emotion. Love is a, a do thing, not just a feel thing. It's a choice that we make to love someone with our actions. When I talk to people and they say, well, we used to be in love, but it just, we just fell out of love. Or I just don't really feel like, I just don't feel love towards him or her anymore. Or I've said this before, it's not original with me. Do the things that love does and you will feel the things that love feels. The emotion's gone, if it's slipped away, if you've lost the fire, you've lost the passion, you've lost the feeling, start doing the things that love does. Start acting out love. Start doing the action of love, and the feelings will return. So love is action, not just emotion. So based on that, now go down to verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body in him is himself its Savior. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Go down to 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Here's what's interesting to me about this whole little, inst- this is like the main, this is like the go-to instructions on marriage in the Bible, right? Like this is the section. 
What's interesting about these instructions about marriage is Paul nowhere in here tells me, here's who you're supposed to be as a husband. Here's what you need to do. Here's your, you know, like, here's how you be a husband. He never tells the Courtney, here's how you be a wife. Here's, here's, here's what you're supposed to do for yourself to be a wife. He says, no, here's what you go and do for him. Here's what you go and do for her. The instructions are set not in anything about me. The instructions are set in going and serving the other person. Because my marriage is not about me. My marriage is first about my spouse. It's about me going and acting in love towards them and serving them. The focus is on how I love and relate to them, not about me. You can see that also in all the Christ language, right? The whole section as he's going through, he's saying, do this as Christ did, as Christ did, as Christ did this, as Christ did that. He's pointing to Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate example of how to sacrificially love and serve. So this is what marriage is supposed to look like. It's not about you. It's about them. This is how we define love. I use this all the time here at Harvest. Some of you should have this like memorized backwards and forwards. This is what biblical love is. Love is you be for me. Right? I just like stuff simple, man. Like it's just, it's just way easy to remember that way. This is biblical love. It's not about me. It's about them. You be for me. That's Christ's example to us. So marriage isn't about me, it's about my spouse. And secondly, actually firstly, but Paul just talks about it secondly. Firstly, marriage is about God. Go on down to the bottom of that passage. Look at verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, God designed marriage in all of its crazy, selfless, messy love to be a picture of the gospel. To be a picture of how Jesus came down to sacrifice and love and serve his people, his church. That's what marriage is about. God knew that every one of us was lost in our sin that we were desperate, that we could not fix it, that we could not find a way out, that there was no way we could fix the, the fleshly sin part of our heart on our own. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to come to live a perfect and sinless life and then to die a sinner's death on the cross, to stand in our place, to take our sin upon his shoulders, to die as my substitute. And he went into the grave, and three days later, he came back to life. He was God, and he came back to life, and he gives us forgiveness and grace and mercy. He offers all of that to us. If we will believe, if we will put our faith in him. And that is what marriage is all about. It's to be a tangible picture for everyone around you to see the grace of God and the love of God being extended between two people. So they might get a little taste of what Jesus' love is like for them in spite of their sin. Marriage is about putting God's grace and goodness on display for all to see. The purpose of my marriage is to glorify God not glorify me. It's not about me. Marriage is not about me. All of this goes back to, and it starts with that opening statement. What I believe about God determines the quality of my marriage. Right? It all comes down to that. If that is not my starting point, then I never get to these other things. If I get sidetracked with it, it's about me and it's their problem and it's their sin and they're like, I miss all of it. The more clearly I see him and who he is, the more clearly. 
and who I am. The worst of sinners who brings the war of sin into my marriage and makes it all about me. So, here's the plan. By God's grace, we're going to pray and we're going to ask that over the next six weeks that he would change our minds, that he would change our hearts, that he would reorient us to make our marriage in all of our relationships about him and his glory and his love and not about us. And I have faith to believe that at the end of the six weeks, God is going to have all of us to a healthier, more God-honoring, more God-glorifying place when it comes to our relationships. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray and we'll sing as we close today. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, so much for just our time together today. Thank you, God, for the way that you love us, the way that you care for us, Lord, just your grace and goodness to us. Lord, we would not be here if it wasn't for that. Lord, we would be nothing without you. We would have nothing to offer, nothing to give, Lord, nothing. We would not be able to love the way you called us to love if you hadn't loved us first. So Father, we just stand here today in your presence, marveling at your grace, marveling at your goodness, knowing that you are indeed a great and holy God. And we just need to see a better, stronger, more vivid, closer picture of who you are to draw us deeper, to make us more like Jesus. Lord, show us who you are. Lord, fill our hearts with the greatness of who you are. I pray this in Christ's name.